Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 18th, 2018. The share IDs for Friday, February 16th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11056, that's 11,056. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11058, 11,058. This morning, A Vision for You presents Meeting My Old Friend for the First Time. In step one, we found complete despair, powerlessness. We cannot solve the problem of compulsive overeating by ourselves. We've realized that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, our effort, our self-knowledge, our philosophy, our morality, goals, or good intentions won't solve our problem of compulsive overeating. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. They're not effective. In step two, we are given the solution. Our situation is not hopeless. Far from it. There is hope, but that hope lies outside ourselves. As the big book states, we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. But where and how will we define this power? In step two, we begin that search, an undertaking that will lead us through the remainder of the 12 steps. With us today to share about his search for a higher power is Harlan G., a recovered compulsive overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous and a beloved member and friend of A Vision for You. Welcome to the line, Harlan. Thank you very much, Leah, and I'm so glad to be here. I'm so honored to be here, and my path here was definitely guided by God, and it's been an arduous journey, but I'm so happy to be here. I am Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona, and um, I was born in Chicago, raised in Chicago, educated in Chicago. And uh, on the day that I was born, my mother had no idea that she was pregnant, not a clue that she was pregnant. My mother had profound mental illness. My mother had three distinct personalities. My mother could be a screaming, raving lunatic one minute, and then she could just breathe in air, and somehow, some way, she would just transform into a three-year-old. And from the three-year-old, she could transform just breathe in air, and she could become a pretty normal, educated, well-read person, person that you'd think was totally normal. And then she would breathe in air and become a screaming, raving lunatic again. And you never knew what you were going to get or for how long. My dad was 54 years old on the day that I was born. My dad was the survivor of a massive murder in Europe prior to World War II, this is turn-of-the-century anti-Semitism, which killed his family. And uh, there was a very large family, and he was the sole survivor of that murder and that mayhem. And it marked him, and it scarred him for the rest of his life. And I've had several people tell me, even though he was never really diagnosed with anything, that he definitely was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Is that why I'm a compulsive overeater? Absolutely not. 
absolutely not. I am a compulsive overeater because I have an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. I have an allergy of the body, which makes it impossible for me to stop once I've started, and a twist of the mind that will not allow me any type of respite or comfort when I'm not eating, and it drives me irresistibly into the arms of the food which destroyed my life. And my life has been destroyed. My life has been torn asunder from the moment that I was born by this illness. I am not one of those people who came upon this illness as a teenager or a person in their 20s or 30s. The big book talks about going over the line. I went over the line with a diaper on my bottom and a thumb in my mouth. I am absolutely certain of it because from the time that I was born, from the time that I was a toddler, my weight and my food consumption were topics of hot conversation. I have vivid memories of people screaming and yelling at my mother and father about how fat I was getting and how much I weighed from the time I was a little tiny child. And there have always been two things that scared the daylights out of me. Number one, going to the doctor, and number two, buying clothes. Because every time I went to the doctor, the screaming and the yelling would start. The doctor would start yelling and screaming at my mother. And then after the doctor's visit, uh, we would go for ice cream on the way home. And that was my life as a child, was eating and listening to them yelling and screaming at each other. They showed their love and affection for one another with pots and pans flying through the air. Uh, They would scream and yell things at each other that you wouldn't say to your worst enemy. And that was their life, and that was who they were. And every day, my father would come home, and he would say, I hate your mother. And the only reason I live here is because of you. And my mother would tell me every single day, I hate your father, and the only reason I live here is because of you. And I was five years old watching Yogi Bear and wondering if Yogi and Boo Boo were going to get away with the picnic basket because Ranger Smith was coming around the corner to catch them. And I didn't want to be burdened with the fact that we couldn't pay this bill or we couldn't pay that bill or we had no money or this or that. I didn't want to really be burdened with that, but from a very, very early age on, I became the head of the household, and I became their parent. They needed me to become their parent because they really couldn't parent themselves. They couldn't parent me, and they certainly couldn't live in the world that they were ill-equipped for. And what I didn't realize was I was so inundated with all this information at such a young age that I never had the chance to become a kid. And later in life, that really reared its ugly head on me. But from the, as I said, from the time I was a kid, this disease had me in its grip. And I have vivid memories <clears throat> of going to the doctor as a nine-year-old and being put on diet pills. I have vivid memories of what those diet pills did to me. Those diet pills made the temples of my head sound like a bass drum, ba-boom, 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 and those diet pills worked. But when I crashed down out of them and the diet pills started to lose their effectiveness, I would eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. When you're on those pills, you sleep about mm, maybe 15, 20 minutes a month. 
Uh, you can't hear people talking to you. You can hear them, but what they're saying just sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. And you really can't comprehend what's going on around you because you're like in a world all your own. And it was just terrible. It was horrible. Now, I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter. I'm on the pills. I'm getting in fights at school. And I'm just, I'm not the person that I was. And the pills really changed me. But I lost weight. I lost weight on these pills. And then when I got to be about 10 years old, Kennedy was killed in 63. I was nine. 10, yeah, 10 years old. Uh, then they started coming out with some of the dangers of these amphetamines, and they switched me from a big pink pill to a smaller blue pill, and instead of taking it three times a day, I was taking it four times a day. And the same effect, exactly the same effect. And I have a memory of being in high school, and high school was very hard for me. I had one advantage, and that is I never had to transfer schools. We never moved or anything. One of the things my parents got right was they never really moved me around. So I have friends who I've known from day one of life, and I still have those friends today, which is a treasure in my life, which is a real treasure in my life. And many of them, many of them live here in Arizona, which is why I first moved here as well. But when we were in high school, obviously, we were starting to notice girls. We were actually noticing them in grammar school. But this disease emasculated me. It emasculated me physically. It emasculated me mentally. And I never had the opportunity to look at a girl and have a crush on her and think at any level that I had any shot with her at all whatsoever. I was the fattest kid in the school. I was wearing clothes that were completely out of style. My dad had to go into the old neighborhood in Chicago in Albany Park on the north side, and he would buy me clothes that went out of style during the Great Depression. And I'd have like three, four pairs of pants. They'd all be the same color, same style, same cut, same everything. But if they fit, I had to wear them. I had a size 48-inch waist as a senior in high school. And I remember as a junior in high school, I uh, hurt my ankle. We were playing soccer, in uh, indoor soccer in gym, and I really sprained my ankle really badly. And I went to uh, Edgewater Hospital in Chicago. It's not there anymore, but it was on the north side. And my mom took me on the bus. And we went to Edgewater Hospital, and I got my ankle looked at, and Dr. Bernstein was taping up my ankle, and he looked over the, over the top of his glasses, and he said to my mother, you know, Virginia, he'll never live to see 30. I was 308 pounds at the end of my junior year in high school, and by the time I was a senior in high school, I was 335 pounds with a size 48-inch waist. 335 pounds in high school. Unbelievable. When I think back on it, it's a miracle. I didn't fit in my skin. I didn't fit in my clothes. I didn't fit in the desk. I didn't fit in the world. And my only respite was to eat more food. The only time that that edge was taken off was when I was under the spell of a Kit Kat bar. And a Kit Kat bar or an Oreo cookie could transform me to a place that I so wanted to go. And it was a place of peace, and it was a place of wonderment. And for about nine seconds, the world was a very beautiful place.
But about 10 seconds in, the horror and the remorse and the pall of what I had done to myself was upon me. And I wore it like a cape, a heavy, horrible cape of shame and remorse and guilt and horror and suicidal thoughts. And I didn't know how to live and I didn't know what to do. And around me, the world was crashing in. And I blamed God. I blamed God for everything that happened to me. I blamed God for the fact that I had crazy parents instead of young parents. I blamed God that I had poor parents instead of rich parents. I blamed God that I didn't look like the other boys, and I cursed him. And I was presented a God as a child in school, not in public school, but in Hebrew school. Now, again, I want to be very, very clear here. I am not knocking anyone's religion or anyone's belief. I'm just telling my story. I was presented with a God as a child that spoke only Hebrew. And if I didn't communicate with him in Hebrew, which was very difficult for me, then he couldn't hear me, and I certainly couldn't hear him. And I blamed him. I cursed him, and I was angry at him because he gave me a life that I didn't want to live. I wanted to be someone else. I wanted to be anyone else but me. And my first idea of a higher power wasn't necessarily the God of Israel. My first idea of a higher power, something that I could believe in, was not a deity in the sky, but it was other people. Because I judged my insides with their outsides and I wanted them to take care of me. I wanted them to give me what so seemingly easily they stumbled upon. And I had friends of mine, and still do, that could eat four French fries and have a conversation and leave the rest of their food on the plate and not even pay attention to it. I have friends of mine, and you do too, that could have a birthday and they would order a piece of cake with five forks. I couldn't understand this because even from the time that I was a little kid, even from the time I was a child, I knew that there was something wrong with the way I ate when I matched it up against what I saw in the world around me. I'd be watching a television program. I'd be watching a movie and something would happen on the show and they would leave their dinner and go away and I'd say, but wait a minute, you didn't eat your dinner. And, and, and this is what was so apparent to me, and other people were just laughing when I would vocalize it. And I understood at a very early age on, and I know <clears throat> that many of you have had this experience too, I couldn't explain to people the question that they asked me so often, why are you doing this to yourself? And the only thing I could think of was, I'm hungry, I didn't have lunch, which was a lie. I probably had four lunches by then. Why are you doing this to yourself? And in grammar school and high school and even before, there were parents of my friends that would sit me down and talk to me and say, look, girls don't like fat boys. Fat boys don't get good jobs. Fat boys don't get to go to good colleges. 
fat boys don't have a good life. Why don't you be thin? Why don't you just push yourself away from the table? Why don't you just buck up and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and don't eat cookies and candy and don't eat dessert? And what they didn't understand is that more than anything in this world, I wanted to acquiesce to their demands. I agreed with them. I understood intellectually what they were telling me. But I couldn't comply. There was something inside of me that had to have chocolate chip cookies. There was something inside of me that once I had one Three Musketeers bar, I had to have as many of them as I could get my hands on. That there was no stopping me once I started and that there was no keeping me from getting started. And I didn't understand it either. And I entered, as I said, I was up to high school. I was a senior in high school. Many, many of my friends who had much better grades than I did, I couldn't, I did enough just to get by. I never thought I would even live very long. I knew in my mind I wasn't going to live very long. And I didn't want to live in this world. I didn't know how. I didn't know how. I, I had gone on diets as a child, and for short periods of time, I would lose weight, and people would pat me on the back, and they'd say, hey, you're not eating so much. Don't you feel better? And I'd say to myself, yes, I feel terrible. I feel horrible, but I'm going to pretend that I feel better because that's the answer that they want. And when I didn't eat so much, I felt lots of things better. I felt anger better. I felt jealousy better. I felt like killing myself better. I felt fear better. I felt all those things much, much better because stripped of the food, my feelings were bursting to the surface in my head like Roman candles on the 4th of July. And I looked around at the world and I said to myself many thousands of times, God, what do I lack that these people seem to have stumbled into so easily? Why is it that they can eat so moderately and it doesn't even seem to bother them? Why is it that they have to be told about the starving kids in China or the starving kids in Africa? And I don't have to be told about those things. Nobody ever had to chide me or coerce me to finish my food. You'd be lucky if I didn't finish yours too. You better eat fast because I'm going to finish yours too. Nobody ever had to tell me about that stuff. And when I was a senior in high school, I started noticing that my parents are dying. My mom was not only mentally ill, but my mom was physically ill. And my mother had no use of, uh, of her kidneys and she had to go on dialysis. Now, I don't have brothers and sisters. I don't have aunts, uncles, or cousins. I don't have any of that. I never had grandparents. I never had any of that stuff. So I was alone facing dialysis in Chicago in the dead of winter, getting her to Illinois Masonic Hospital to get that uh, dialysis treatment. And this was in, 19, in the 1970s. I graduated Mather High School in 72. I'm 63 years old. You don't have to do the math. Um, 
I graduated Mather High School in 1972, and I'm taking her to Illinois Masonic Hospital right after that to get her dialysis treatments. So I, I couldn't go away to college. I couldn't really go away anyway. A, I didn't have the money, and B, my grades were not great. I tested good, but my grades were just not great. I didn't put the time in to study. And my dad was also dying as well. And I have memories of being about 19 years old after high school and taking my dad to the oncologist. And the oncologist said to me at that time, your dad has about five years to live. He has lung cancer. My dad was a very heavy smoker. My dad smoked Chesterfield king size one after the other, after the other, after the other. And when he wasn't smoking, he was eating compulsively. Me, my mom, and dad were all compulsive overeaters. We weighed about 1,100 pounds in our last adult years together. My mom weighed about 290, 280. My dad weighed about 280, 290, something like that. And I was over 500 pounds at that time when we were kind of coming to the end of things. And I blamed God. Why do I have to spend my money that I'm earning why do I have to spend my money on their medicine when my friends don't have to do that? Why do I have to spend my money getting them things that they need? Why do I have to do these things and my friends don't? And I became very bitter about that too. And I blamed God. And I blamed him. And I cursed him. And I said to him, you suck. You just, you blow chunks. You, are, you, you, you screwed me over. And I, I don't want to live in this world anymore the, the way things are going. I really don't. And mercifully, my mother died in 1976. And um, the last conversation I had with my mother, my mother died at Evanston Hospital. And uh, the last conversation I had with her was she begged me, the last lucid conversation I had with her, she begged me to find a way not to eat so much. She said, you're really going to be alone soon. And she said, you have nobody. She says, you have your friends. That's all you're going to have. And she said, I, I can't help you. I'm, I'm not going to be here. She says, you're going to have to find a way not to eat so much or you're going to die too and you're never going to live. And then she died. And um, the last lucid conversation I had with my dad, 1978, November 11th, 1978, um, my dad passed away. And um, the last conversation I had with him, he, it was all in Yiddish, but because the English left him at the end of his life. Um, he said to me, my son, which means my son, um, it's an umglet, the fresen is an umglet. The fresen means to eat normally. Fresen means to eat uh, compulsively. Uh, he says, it's an umglet, often do. He says, it, 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 he, I'll translate. He said, the food came into your life and took you away from us. He said, when I saw you, when I, when I knew that you were born in America, he said, I knew that being an American was the greatest thing that you could be. And he said that that's why I survived. That's why I made it out of there. And he was marked by such pain and such torture in his life. He was absolutely sure that they were going to kill us again, that they were going to round us up and kill us. And every single day of his life, he would tell me, they're going to kill us for sure. They're going to kill us. He says, um, it's just not a question of if, it's a question of when. And he says, if they don't come and kill you, they'll kill your children. And this is, I'm hearing this every day, and I blame God. 
And at the end of his life, he begged me not to eat so much. He says, I saw that you could be president of the United States one day. He says, but you've got to stop eating so much. And when he died, he was buried in November of 78. One of my very, very dear friends turned to me on the cemetery. We were walking, and she was this, she's the sister of one of my dear friends. And she turned to me on the cemetery, and she said, she said to us, Mr. G is free. They'll never get him now. They'll never hurt him now. And for the first time in my life, I realized he was emancipated from that death sentence that he lived with his entire life, that the sword of Damocles was no longer hanging over his head, that death had freed him and had emancipated him, and he had outlived his murderers. And I continued to eat. And as my friends left, as we were mourning him, sitting Shiva in my home, and they left, and I was alone in that apartment for probably the first time in my life. And the darkness and the loneliness and the feeling of being alone were upon me. And I remember binging my brains out. There was a ton of food in the house. I mean, everybody brought food. It was just, it was an amazing, amazing amount of food in that house. And I polished off an entire Lazy Susan that probably fed 10, 11 people. And I finished it by myself that night. And I had never been as alone since as I was that night. That was really torture. That was really torture. And I blamed God and I sat there in the darkness with tears running down my face, eating food that I didn't want to eat and blaming God. I remember my life was in a tailspin. My life was in a total tailspin. I was probably 650, 675 pounds at this time. I wouldn't go to the doctor. I remember having heavy calluses on my feet and trying to uh, get rid of the calluses with a razor blade and I would like shave my feet and, and the blade would cut into my skin and I would, it was like walking on glass. It was horrible because I didn't want to go to the doctor and get screamed at. And I remember at that time I didn't wear underpants. I had towels shoved between layers of flab. I had towels shoved between layers of flab and the moisture from the infections used to make the towels like wet, like moist. And there was such contact dermatitis that I wouldn't wish it on anybody. My thighs were in different zip codes. I couldn't bend down. The swelling in my lower legs was so profuse that I had dime and penny size ulcers in the back of my legs. They are discolored and scarred to this day where the pus used to run out. And I couldn't sit in a chair without falling asleep. And I couldn't sit in a chair and fall asleep without my legs blowing up from the edema. And I couldn't function. I couldn't stand. I couldn't sit. I couldn't walk. I couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't sit in the seat. I had one pair of pants. I had a couple, three, four shirts, whatever they were. I'd wash them out in the sink. And they had stains from food and they had stains from cigarettes because I was a smoker at that time. And there was burn marks on all my shirts. And I couldn't wear what other people wore. And I'm in my 20s and my friends are 
starting to not starting they were dating and getting engaged and going to college and starting careers and businesses and I was eating and trying not to life was terrible life was horrible I didn't have the money to support my, in the 70s, 100 to $150 a day food habit. I was emasculated. I was filthy dirty. I practiced no hygiene. The dirt on my neck was so horrible that when I would sweat, there would be filth and dirt that would come out of my, the folds of skin on my throat and in my neck. I didn't brush my teeth for years. I didn't comb my hair for years. I didn't care how I looked. I didn't care what I smelled like. I peed in my pants constantly. I crapped in my pants constantly. My skin was so dry that it was unbelievable. I had fissures in the bottom of my feet. Fissures are cracks in the skin. And through it all, I kept eating and eating and eating and eating. Nothing could stop me. Now, you believe whatever you want to believe, and I'm not here to tell you what to believe. I'm not here to tell you how to believe. If you are an atheist, you can recover in this program. If you are an agnostic, one who has no knowledge, you can recover in this program. Or if you are a believer, you can recover in this program. My father died in November of 1978. And I believe that my dad had great stead with with God Almighty, and I believe that he is at God's right hand because he is certainly in heaven because he lived hell on earth. He lived hell on earth. He said many times, I wish they had killed me too. But his brother Charlie pushed him out the door, and that's my middle name is Charles. And that's why that's my middle name. He said, I survived so you could be born in America, which is the greatest thing to be. And he would see birds or squirrels in a park, and he'd say, what a country, what a country. And I'd say, why, Dad? And he'd say, because in a poor country, those pigeons and those squirrels, you'd be eating them. And I'd say, people eat pigeons? And he would laugh, and he would pat my head and say, You get hungry enough and you're on the run like me, you'll eat them and you'll be glad you got them. And sometimes I'd put them in the car and I would take them to Wisconsin just on our ride, just get in the car and drive. And he would start crying and he would say, when it said, you're leaving Illinois, and then it said, land of Lincoln, and then it would say, you're entering Wisconsin, America's dairy land. And he would clap his hands together and say, what a country, what a country. Because where he comes from, you can't just go from one place to the other unless you have papers and you have a checkpoint that you need to report to and you have to have credentials to do that. And then when I go back to Illinois, he'd start crying again. And I blamed God, and I hated God for doing that. Well, you believe what you want to believe, because not long after my father died in 1978, on February the 2nd, 1979, 
I was dragged against my will by two beautiful friends, one of which lives two minutes from where I sit right now, five minutes from where I sit right now here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And they dragged me to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous at the Orchard Mental Health Center in Skokie, Illinois. And I remember sitting there at 600 pounds, 500, 600 pounds at that time, easily, with pee in my pants and crap in my pants and towels shoved between layers of flab and thinking, what the hell are these people doing here? They have Cadillacs and they have Lincolns and they have beautiful clothing and they have money. All the things that I believed that if I had them, my life would be perfect. And they had them and they were sitting there. And I didn't want to go to these meetings, but I owed a lot of money. Owed a lot of money, wrote a lot of bad checks, told a lot of lies, lied when the truth would have served me better, lied like a rug, manipulated with the best of them. I would eat my way to the meetings. I would pray for a Russian airstrike during the meetings, and I would eat my way home. I've got fakakta allergies bothering me again. <laughs> Sorry. And it's on them should have allergies like this. But anyway, um, I would go, and I heard some things, and I stopped smoking. Funny, you don't come to Overeaters Anonymous to stop smoking, but I did. I stopped smoking not long after I came into OA. And I went on a diet with group support, and I lost some weight. I don't think anybody in there really talked about steps. They were on the wall, but we didn't hear much about the steps. And I came in there, and I stayed for a while. I met Bill Bluestein. I met Fred Schneider. They'd come through. Fred Schneider is the one that found, uh, uh, started the How programs. I met him. He came through Chicago. And Bill Bluestein came several times to Chicago out of California. He's the one that wrote the book and all that. And I, I got around in OA. People would drag me here and drag me there and go to retreats and go here. and Not to speak at them like I do now, but just to go. And um, some things started happening, and then I graduated. I thought, well, I've got this. I can do this on my own. I had a beautiful graduation ceremony. Uh, many of you have had the same ones. They say that my graduation ceremony was in a window, and they said, welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order, please? Some of you have had the same ones. And I graduated, and I gained even more weight, and I ate even more, and my situation was beyond unbelievable, beyond unbelievable. And I came back with my tail between my legs in, 1986, 85, 86. Um, and I saw some things in the big book that I had never seen before. One of them was on page 58. And on page 58, it says, if you have decided, excuse me, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. Hmm. If you've decided you want what we have, what is it that we have? What we have in Overeaters Anonymous, it was explained to me by a very, very forceful gentleman who's dead now is that hopefully we have people in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous 
who are not eating compulsively, who are compulsive overeaters, not eating compulsively, and they are doing so happily. That if you're willing to go to any length to get it, and this was explained to me that this is not a program for people who need it. It is not a program for people who want it. It is a program for people who do it. This is an action program that wanting it, that needing it are not enough, that I must be prepared to take action after action after action. And I waited, like so many do, for willingness to take those actions, and it never came. But what I had to do was I had to look across the table at my Ebby, and I had to see that he was sober, but I was not. So I started taking action after action after action, which I didn't even believe would work for me. And lo and behold, the willingness came. The willingness came after the action. And on page 45 of the big book in the chapter, We Agnostics, is the thesis line of this big book. And it says, and I'm quoting here, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Now, here's the thesis line. I led into it with a sentence. Its main object is to enable you to find a power, in capital letters, greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. doesn't say problems like it does on page 42, because once my addiction is in recovery, everything else will clear up. It says problem. Now, I also had to understand, and I know that the topic today is step two, I had to understand something prior to accepting step two. I had to understand that food was not my problem. You see, I spent my entire life believing that food and weight were my problem, and they are not. Food, for people like me, is the solution to the problem. What is the problem? If food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem, for people like me, is the buildup of everyday, normal, human emotion. Now, all human beings have emotions. I've had German shepherds for years. They have emotions. All human beings have happiness. We've eaten a lot of food when we were happy. Sadness, regret, jealousy, fear, anger. All human beings have normal human emotions. And in a normal, non-addicted human being, these emotions are dissipated to a manageable level by doing very simple things. And you see them every day as I do as well. I see them too. They can go to the gym. They can take a walk. They can play with the dog. They can play with the cat. They can read a book. And they're fine. 
but these emotions will pinball around in my soul. They will pinball around in my skull, and they become so uncomfortable that my brain will lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating that food. And the mental twist, the part of my mind that will drive me into the food will suggest strongly and seductively that I eat an Oreo cookie. And the intelligent side of my brain will say, no, 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 don't eat that Oreo cookie, Harlan. You eat that Oreo cookie, you're going to be very sad, you're going to gain weight, you're going to be unhappy, and the mental twist will bring in its closest ally, the mental blank spot. And the mental blank spot will eradicate from my consciousness any consequence to eating an Oreo cookie, I will not be able to focus in on the consequences. I will only know that I'm going to get that effect. What is the effect? Dr. Silkworth tells us that that effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly upon eating that Oreo cookie or a Kit Kat bar or whatever it is that jazzes you. And I eat the cookie, and I get about nine seconds of euphoria. It's orgasmic euphoria. It makes the world a very beautiful place. It straightens out everything. It makes everything beautiful. And then about 10 seconds in, everything is ugly. And the cloak of that remorse and that regret is upon me. But by then, I have triggered the physical allergy. What is the physical allergy? The allergy is an adverse, abnormal reaction to the food, beverage, or substance. And the reaction that I have is to eat more of the same. And if my reaction is adverse, meaning that it is harmful, and it is abnormal, meaning most people don't react that way, I am considered to be allergic. Because when I eat certain foods, or amounts of foods, when I eat certain foods, I have an actual physical craving for more of the same. And I continue to eat. And I will eat and eat and eat, and there's no telling when I'm going to stop. Now, if I can't eat because of the allergy, and I can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind and the mental blank spot. I am considered to be powerless over food. And that's what we are. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. And the process of bringing the necessary power, step two, into the equation is simply called recovery. Now, we're... Where is step two? Where does it come from? What is, the, what is the flashpoint of step two? Step two came, step one comes to us from Dr. Silkworth. Bill Wilson knew the problem. He got the problem from Silkworth on page seven. It says, although he had been selfish and foolish, he was ill mentally and bodily. He knew he could do other things but he could not control the amount he drank once he started, 
and he could not keep from drinking now that he wanted to. Where does step two come from? It comes from the Oxford group. And when Ebby came to see Bill Wilson on page eight at the bottom, there were a lot of things that had happened in the light in, that Bill was aware of, kind of, but what was happening is started out with Roland Hazard. And Roland Hazard was a wealthy industrialist from Rhode Island. And he was an alcoholic. And he sought ways of getting sober. And he had a lot of money and he didn't have to work, so he had himself sequestered on a Caribbean island for a year and the quartermaster brought him no liquor. And he stayed sober for a year. He got off the island. He went to Florida. He was drunk within an hour or two. And Roland Hazard sought out, and this is where we are in our readings, you know, right now as we're here in February uh, 18th of, of, of 2018. This is where we are in our daily readings. We've been reading this. He sought out the services later on in 1932. He sought out the services of Sigmund Freud. And Freud wasn't taking on any new patients. And he sought out the services of Dr. Adler. And Adler was the number one protege of Freud. And he wasn't taking on any new patients. And Roland then went to Switzerland to get with Dr. Carl Jung. And Dr. Jung took him on and analyzed him and medicated him for a year. But there was no liquor there. So Roland stayed sober. Dr. Jung releases Roland at the end of a year and says, you're okay to go home. Roland goes to Paris from Switzerland, and in Paris, he's going to catch a ship to go back to New York. He meets two of his parents' friends in Paris, and they celebrate his cure. They celebrate his sobriety. They celebrate his enlightenment with a bottle of France's best champagne. Roland is so drunk, he can't walk, let alone get on the ship. He goes back to Dr. Jung, and Dr. Jung is telling him he is going to die. He's going to have to have a bodyguard. He's going to have to be shut up somewhere, or he's going to die. And Roland Hazard begged Dr. Jung, is there no solution for people like me? Now, remember I said he went to Freud, didn't get in. Went to Adler, didn't get in. Is it odd or is it God that he got to the man who believed that here and there, there were vital spiritual experiences, which I've never had, but a spiritual experience is sudden and profound. And here and there, there were vital spiritual experiences that could change a person, and this was his only hope. Roland takes this flimsy reed and goes to New York in 1933 and goes into the Oxford group movement, meets Sam Shoemaker, the rector there, the, the guy that was in charge, the Presbyterian minister, who was in charge of the cavalry mission in New York. He was Frank Buckman's uh, point man in New York. Frank Buckman founded the Oxford Group Movement. The Oxford Group Movement was not concerned at all with alcoholism. They were concerned with reinstating enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, there's a good word, and from God. 
in, inspiring enthusiasm into Christians who had lost their zeal for Christ. Roland goes in and meets a guy by the name of Zebra Graves Jr. And Zebra Graves Jr. was also an alcoholic who had found sobriety working the six-step program of the Oxford Group Movement. Now, the Oxford Groupers also had another guy by the name of Shep Cornell, and he was an alcoholic, and he was staying sober by working the six steps of the Oxford Group Movement. They are, number one, complete deflation. Number two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Number three, moral inventory. Number four, confession. Number five, restitution. Number six, spreading the word, giving testimony or what we would say, continued work with other alcoholics. And Roland is meeting these couple of guys, and he's noticing that he is staying sober, and he's rather happy about it. Now, let's switch back to New York, New York State, Albany, New York. And there's a guy that lives in Albany, New York, whose parents have a summer home in Manchester, New York, as do the Hazards. They have a summer home in Manchester, Vermont. Excuse me, not Manchester, New York. Manchester, Vermont. And his name is Edwin Ebby Thatcher. And Edwin Ebby Thatcher is an alcoholic. And Ebby Thatcher is getting into trouble in Albany with the police. And his family says to him, get the heck out of here. Go to Vermont get the summer home ready, we'll be out at the end of the season. We'll be out at the beginning of the season. Ebby goes to Vermont, and he's starting to paint a wall. Of course, he's drunk. And some pigeons land on the gutter. So he does what any normal alcoholic who's drunk does. He goes in the house and starts getting his, gets his shotgun, starts blasting the pigeons. Of course, the pigeons are long gone. He's blasting his shotgun in the backyard. The neighbors get scared. They call the police. Ebby is brought in and told he's not to do this again. One more outburst from him, and he's going to Brattleboro Insane Asylum in Vermont. Brattleboro isn't just a city in Vermont. It is the, the place where the state insane asylum is housed. A couple of months later, Ebby is driving his car drunk and drinking while driving, drinking openly while driving drives right into a woman's home with no contrition whatsoever. Instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry, are you hurt, can I help you? He sticks his head out the window and in a drunken rage says, hey, toots, how about a cup of coffee? Ebby is brought in in late August of 1934 to the judge and the judge is about to remand him in September to Brattleboro Insane Asylum. While this is going on, Roland Hazard and Zebra Graves Jr. have visited the Hazards in Rhode Island to show the Hazards that, that their son Roland is sober and he's happy about it, and the Hazards are quelling. Quelling is a Yiddish word for rapture beyond belief. And they, they weren't Jewish. <laughs> they say to Roland, go on a vacation, do what you want, we'll pay. And Sieber Graves Jr. says to his friend Roland, 
you must come to East Dorset, Vermont, and meet my family. Now, who else do we know that is from East Dorset, Vermont? Bill Wilson. And Sebra Graves Jr. and Roland Hazard both know about Ebby Thatcher. They, had, they knew about Ebby, and they knew Bill. They knew Bill, and they knew Ebby. And they heard that Ebby was in trouble. This is now September of 1934. Sheba Graves Jr. and Roland Hazard decide to petition the judge whose name just happens to be Sheba Graves Sr. Is it odd or is it God? Sheba Graves Sr. is the judge in the case of Vermont versus Thatcher. And they get the judge to remand Ebby to their custody. Ebby signs extradition papers. Not too big a fireball of willingness, I might say. He has two choices, go to Brattleboro and be in the insane asylum or go with these two gentlemen to New York City and go into the Oxford group movement. He decides through gritted teeth to go with them to New York. From September of 1934 to October is one month and he is sober. From October to November of 1934, he is sober for two months. And they say to Ebby Thatcher, go give testimony. Remember the step six? Give testimony. Tell, this is timeless. Go tell God what people did for, for you. And... <clears throat> Uh, if you've ever been to a Jewish home on a holiday, it's basically the same thing. They tried to kill us. Some of us got away. Let's eat. But anyway, that aside, Ebby is now told that he must go give testimony. And he doesn't want to go give testimony. He says, I don't want to do that. And they said, oh, no, you don't have to. You can go to Brattleboro if you want to. He says, you know what? I think I'll go give some testimony. And he thinks and he thinks, think, 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 think. He thinks about who he can give testimony to or he won't embarrass the daylights out of himself. And he thinks about his old drinking buddy, his friend, his pal from school. And he makes a call at 182 Clinton Street on Bill Wilson. Bill knew. Bill was drunk. But Bill knew about the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. Now, Ebby is going to bring him a solution to that problem. He is going to bring him the spiritual experience, the spiritual awakening as the result of working the steps, not wanting them, not going to meetings, not using just the tools, but working the steps. Ebby is now going to bring to Bill Wilson the solution to the problem the spiritual solution. And that's where we get step two. That's where step two comes into our program. And that is an unbelievable thing because Bill knew the problem. Now, is Bill the first person to get the problem and the solution? We don't know. But here's what we can bet our lives on. Bill Wilson will be the first person in the history of planet Earth to take this information and move it forward. And that's where we get step two. Now, there was something else that caught my eye in this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it is on page XX. And on page XX, it says very clearly, of 100 people that came into Alcoholics Anonymous, 
50% got sober at once. Of the 50 that remained, 25 got sober. And of the 25 that remained, they showed improvement. That's 75% of the alcoholics that came in got sober. Now, I've been in Overeaters Anonymous since 1979, with a little interruption here in the middle. I've been here a long time. I've gone to thousands and thousands of meetings. It's been my honor and privilege to speak at conventions and big book studies and all these other things all across this country many times. We can't talk about 75%. Are you kidding me? We can't talk about 50%. We can't talk about 5%. We're lucky if we can talk about 1.5% to 2% of the people that are coming in that are recovering. Why? Because we keep getting away from working the steps out of this book. Now, that may not work for some people. That may not work for some people. Maybe they have to do it another way. I don't know what to tell you. But what I can tell you is this. I have lost over 500 pounds in this program. I have 19 years of blissful abstinence that I wouldn't trade for anything. We're all going to die. Death is going to come to us all. But I have lived. And I have lived with the knowledge in my heart and in my soul that there is a God and that there are two things I need to know about God and only two. Number one, there is one, and number two, it's not me. And that God is my constant companion and lives in my soul and lives in my heart, and yes, I have challenges and problems like anyone else. I wish I had more money. I wish I had a wife. I wish I had whatever. I wish I was... 20 or 15 with the knowledge that I have now. I want a do-over, darn it. I deserve a do-over. I want a do-over. I can't get one. But I know in my soul that I'm being carried. And I know in my soul that there is a God. And there's a God that I can count on. I've never Carlin, we lost you. Oh, I don't know where that's coming from. Now okay. you're back. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. There is a God. And no matter what, I'm going to quote my friend John Kay. John Kay is my constant companion also. He also happens to be my sponsor. He lives in Los Angeles, and he said something brilliant. He said, if you're struggling with step two, and you can't think of a higher power, can you think of yourself as a lesser power and start from there? And it was brilliant. He said it at the OA birthday, almost knocked me off my chair. He said, can you think of yourself as a lesser power? I'm put in a maze every morning, and there's no escaping the maze. The only way out is to be lifted over the top by a loving creator, and every morning I'm in there, and every morning when I pray and meditate and I serve others, I'm lifted out and I am happy about it. No matter what my present circumstance, I know 
that as long as I work my butt off in this program, I'm going to be taken care of. I know in my soul that that God is there for you too. And if you're struggling with things like molestation or rape or horrible, egregious things that happen to us as human beings, can we think of a higher power maybe that we are willing to believe in? There's nothing in the book that says you must believe. All that it says is, are you willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? All that's required is willingness to believe that there is a power greater than myself. Am I so ego-driven that I am the be-all and the end-all? Am I so ego-driven that there's nothing in this world greater than me? Am I going to hang on to a resentment against God that he had nothing to do with because he created human beings? that have free will, and some of us human beings have chosen to do ugly, horrible, nightmarish things to each other. I can't blame God for what people do. I don't know why certain children have cancer or leukemia or what. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. Because if God was small enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problems. But here's what I do know, and I know it as well as I know today's Sunday. This works. It really does. Page 88, it works. It really does. Test this program. Work this program. Do the steps. See if you can find it wanting. I bet you can't. This is the greatest way of life imaginable. I have friends that I love dearly that live here in Scottsdale or in Chicago or wherever. And I've known them my entire life. They do not understand why I'm up so early this morning to talk to you. They do not understand why I get on airplanes to do retreats or big book studies or conventions in in distant places. They do not understand why I still have to do the things that I do in this program, and that's okay. I love them. They know everything about me. They knew my parents. I knew their parents and grandparents. We worked the same jobs. We went to the same schools. I love them. That's why I live here but you are more precious to me because you and I speak the language of the heart. I am not alone when I'm with you. I can talk to you about things I cannot talk to about them. I cannot talk with them about those things, but I can talk to you. I might know you for five minutes, but I can talk to you about fear and anger and hurt and woundedness I can talk to you about joy. I can talk to you about the big book because we speak and understand the language of the heart. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Sanity around food. Sanity around things. Sanity around regret and remorse and anger and fear. Sanity around people. It's what I've looked for my entire life, came to believe. I didn't have a spiritual experience like Bill Wilson did that was sudden and profound. 
I had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. A spiritual awakening is slow in developing, but I believe that every step of the way that there was a power greater than me. And yes, seven years ago, I got divorced in this program. I'm single today. It hurts. It's lonely. I have a daughter. I haven't seen her for years. She will not, she will not communicate with me much. She just won't. And there are things and people that don't do what I want them to do, and that's all okay. Because I have a life today that is free of the guilt and the shame and the horror of what I've done with food and lies and money and manipulating people. I don't have to live that way anymore. It's open to you. Let us take your hand. Let us help you. We're here. We want to help. There are people on this line that will do anything they can for you. This is the greatest way of life in the world. And as my friend Roseanne S. said, it is beyond our wildest dreams. I wish this for you. I believe sincerely that because of the work that Roseanne did, that the sun will never set on the miracles of OA and what Leah and Melanie and Katie do in, in, in uh, Vision for You. I believe that this is the renaissance of OA. This is the renaissance. This is the rebirth of Overeaters Anonymous, which has been going down for a long time. And vision for you is a bright star in that dark sky. And with that, I will pass. Thank you. Thank you, Harlan, for your beautiful and profound story and presentation this morning. Thank you so much for your generous spirit. Harlan's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. We're going to now transition to question-answer segment. If you'd like to ask a question, star 1 to unmute. Give us your first name, first letter, your last name as well. Who has a Shannon question? Shannon S. Shannon S. Star 1 to unmute. June S. June S. This is Lisa L.B. Lisa L.B. Anyone else? If you have a question on your mind, it's probably on the question of a dozen others as well. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's start with these three. Shannon, go right ahead. Thanks, Leah, for your service. Uh, hey, Harlan, Shannon S., Recovered Compulsive Overeater and Anorexic in New York. Thank you so much. Okay. I love um, I love uh, learning and rehearing the, so much of the history and your experience. Um, my question is... I'm not hearing you. Hello. Shannon, star one to unmute. I'm I'm sorry. I was getting a playback. Um. Anyways, my question is, um, for yourself, um, as you went back to step two once recovered, and for your sponsees, do you have specific exercises or activities or assignments that you've completed or that you give your sponsees to help them go deeper in their step two work? I do actually. What I do is most people struggle with this idea of God, 
and a lot of people are trying to drag a hippo through the dog door. They're trying to drag a god from their childhood that they never believed in into their program. So what I try to do is, I don't try, I do this. I ask them, what are the things that you most admire? What are the things that you'd want in a god? What are the characteristics in a god that you would most want? And I'm glad you asked that question, by the way, because... As you know, when, when you speak on the line here, there's always three there's always three leads you do, the one you plan, the one you do, and the one you beat yourself up for not doing. I should have covered this in the in the body of the text. But uh, what characteristics do you want in a God? Uh, and, and that's where I start. You you want you want a God that will help you, a God that cares about you, a God that is going to be powerful. These are all the things I do. I ask them almost to do like a want ad for God like a job description for God. And that's what I have them do. And I make sure that they do those things. My friend Craig F., he says, who's your hero? Uh, I love Craig. He's a character. And Craig will say, who's your hero? Okay, Joe's your hero. What characteristics about Joe uh, make him your hero? Well, he's brave. Okay, write down brave. He's uh, generous. Okay, write down generous. He's, and whatever it is you have in that hero, you write down, and that could be your higher power. I started with Lake Michigan. I started Lake Michigan was my higher power for a long time. And then I moved into a more, uh, a more personal God than that. But it took a while. And, and my God changes over time. When things change in life, my, my higher power changes as well. And I may need characteristics in that God that I may not have needed or was conscious of two years ago or four months ago. And so it's an ever-changing thing. I need a living God, and I suggest this to sponsees. If whatever kind of God works for you, that's not up to me. I'm sharing what I need. I need a living God because a living God can change and metamorphosize where something that's dead cannot. I'm all about great, the splitting of the Red Sea, unbelievable, Cubs winning the World Series, unbelievable, but I need something a little more personal to me. I need something a little more personal to me. So it's whatever works for the person, but I will share with them what worked for me. But I really appreciate the question, Shannon. Thank you. I hope that answered it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Shannon. June S., star one to unmute. Uh, good morning, Harlan. You're such an inspiration to me. I've listened to you so often, and I don't Thank you, come Jane. out and share. But um, anyway, this is June S. I have two questions, not exactly related. When you speak about uh, eating certain foods in terms of the volume of food, do you mean, uh, for example, uh, eating volumes in terms of your trigger foods or just generally eating a higher volume than you should have? on your food plan? I've noticed that when I eat a very high volume of food, I cannot stop eating. I just cannot stop. And that is something that I've noticed my entire life. Now, I've never really sat down and eaten a very high amount of broccoli, and I probably never sat down <laughs> and eat, right. eaten a, you know, a ton of shredded lettuce unless it had very, very seductive dressing on it or something. But when right. I eat a lot of whatever... I just can't stop. So that's what I've noticed in myself. Okay. So, the, all right. That really helps a lot. I appreciate that. No Second question. Thank you. Second question. It's hard to follow sometimes 
who is being spoken about in a text. And, for example, when your sponsor asks, well, who, who is that that they're speaking about? It's like, I don't know. Uh, for example, in the doctor's opinion in uh, XXXI, they're talking Hold about... XXI. Right. Okay. XXI. All right. Where are we? I don't see an XXI in the doctor's opinion, to be honest with you. I don't see X, it starts today. XXI. XI, sorry. Oh, XXXI. Okay. Well, maybe we can try that one. XXXI. I, I don't see it. Oh, yes, I do. Okay. The first of the story where it says about one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated. That's Hank yes. Parkhurst. And the next one where it says, when I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case. That's Fitz Mayo. All right. So the first one is Hank Parker. Hank Parkhurst, who was very instrumental in the writing and publishing of the book. Uh, okay. And Hank Parkhurst, unfortunately, after uh, the short, not long after the book came out, he got drunk and stayed drunk. And Fitz Mayo died of cancer. Uh, but Fitz Mayo had uh, started, OA, started AA, not OA, sorry. He started uh -huh. AA in Washington, D.C. And he was a very, very close confidant of Bill Wilson. And you can read Fitz's story our southern friend on page 208. And Fitz oh, is also referred to in the chapter, We Agnostics. If you go to the end of the chapter, We Agnostics, you will see that there is a reference on page 56. It says, our friend was a minister's son. He is talking about Fitz Mayo. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Holland. You're that, very that, welcome. I'm glad that I shed more light than I asked. <laughs> glad I can help you. That's what we're here for. That's what we do. Okay. Thanks, June. Sure. Thank okay. you, June. Lisa LB. Hi. Uh, this is Lisa LB from Florida. Can you hear me? Perfectly. Yes. Great. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you so much for your talk. It was amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you. I talk with quite a few fellows who are atheists and have a really hard time relating to a God, even like the mm -hmm. example that you shared. Um, and they, they spend a lot of time trying to determine who their God, what their God could be. They just, mm -hmm. you know, have that, um, just a lot of anger with the God word. So, okay. you know, we talked about, you know, people say they thought, you know, it could be a doorknob, it could be a tree. So, mm -hmm. you know, or an ocean. And, and you know, and, and a lot of the answers I hear is, you know, how am I going to pray to an ocean? Mm -hmm. So what would your reaction be to those um, responses of people who have a really hard time with even a God, you know, of what their characteristics they want their okay. God to be? I'm going to, I'm going to quote John Kiernan here, John Kay, in, my, my friend John Kay. John Kay says eloquently and beautifully, can you think of yourself as a lesser power? In other words, Let's just say you're an atheist. Jimmy Burwell was an atheist. Jimmy Burwell was a power driver within AA, and he was an atheist. And it was his determination that really brought about the God-as-you-understand-God concept, because he was not going to hear of a religious deity. Can you think of yourself as a lesser power? In other words, if you are an atheist, which is fine, I'm not, that's fine. Are you the be-all and the end-all of this world? Do you have the power to create a redwood tree? Do you have the power to create a mountain? In other words, 
can you think of yourself as a starting point, as a lesser power, and that there is a power greater than yourself that you choose to call whatever you want to call it. You don't have to call God, God, and think, hmm, I'm going to call it God, and it's the same God that, that split the Red Sea and did the burning bush, the Hanukkah candle, or the oil, excuse me, not the candles, the oil that burned for eight days when it should have burned for one day. You don't have to have that kind of God. Not at all. No, 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 no. It can start, as John would say, by thinking of yourself as a lesser power. And we can start from there. But you know what's important? Wanting to succeed in the program. If you're going to throw up roadblocks, whether you're an atheist or you're a believer or you're an agnostic, and you're going to try to convince yourself that somehow you can't recover, because the ego, one of the jobs of the ego is to make me different from everybody else. Poor me, I can't recover. Poor me, I can't do this. Poor me, I can't do that. Guess what? Poor me, poor me, pour me a drink. Do you want to recover, I would ask this person? Do you really want to recover, or do you want to prove to everybody that you can't recover? Because I'm not a big believer in can't. I'm a believer in will and won't. So if you are an atheist and you want to recover, you can start, as John Kay would say, by thinking of yourself as a lesser power. And I hope that answers it, Lisa. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lisa. Yes, thank you. All right, great opportunity to ask questions. Start one to unmute. Katie G. from Boston. Kimberly. Sarah S. Katie G. Kimberly. Kimberly, your last initial, please. Kimberly S. from Ohio. S. All right. Sarah Jody H. Who's H? Jody H. from Texas. Jody H. Sarah S. Sarah S. Carol D. D. Anyone else? Carol E. D. Gotcha, Carol E. Thank you. Ida. Ida. Shauna H. Shauna H. Anyone else? Wonderful opportunity to ask questions. All right, let's start with this list. Katie G. Uh, Rita G. Rita G, we got you. Katie G followed by Kimberly S. Go ahead, Katie. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for your service. And as always, Harlan, thank you for your service. Thank you. Kind of a follow-up, kind of a follow-up question to one of the questions that was asked. With regards to step two, you've gone through the work, and I know in my life I come across things that, you know, I I have the food down. Um, I definitely see God in many areas of my life, and I don't see, and, and I start getting fearful around God not being in other areas of my life. So you had said expand your idea of God like a living God. Um, I'm just wondering if you can expand a little bit more on anything specific you do. Like, for example, you had mentioned some areas of your life that you do feel um, pain or you, um, and I'm just wondering, like, how do you, if if there's any more specifics you can offer about how you invite God into the, that, those areas. Thanks. 
Thank you, Katie. And I just want everybody here to know that Katie is one of my favorite working comedians. She almost killed me not long ago when she said something on the line. I almost plopped. But anyway, thank you for the question, Katie. Um, how do I expand God into all my areas? By reminding myself constantly that God's timing is not my timing. God's ways are not my ways. And God does not have to stick to my script. And sometimes what God will do is he will reveal himself in a way that will have me shift my paradigm, shift my vision to something else temporarily, and then we'll come back to something. But God is in all areas of my life. This illness affected every single area of my life. There is no area of my life that this illness didn't, didn't scald didn't mar, didn't ruin. And there are no areas in my life left unimproved and unchanged for the better by God. Yes, I'm a human being. I want what I want. I want it now. I want it on my terms. But that's not the way God works. My job is to take the next indicated action. I pray. I meditate. And I believe that he is here with me right now. I do not know what's coming down the next pike. I don't know. I can't see around the bend in the river. I can't. I don't know. And sometimes I think I know the whole picture. But I have to believe, Katie, in the depth of my soul that I do not see the big picture. I can't. I don't see it. He does. I just have to hang in there on faith sometimes, and he will reveal himself. I, I believe that with all my soul. The exercises that I take are service, prayer, meditation, service, service, and more service. And sometimes I'll do service. But that's what I do. That's the practice that I take. And as long as I'm serving him, then those promises on the top of page 63 will come true for me every single time. I hope that answers it. Thank you, Katie G. Kimberly S., your turn. Good morning. Um, I was listening to the part where people are having a hard time with um, with their what's God. And I had a childhood um, vision of that, and it's not a good one. So when I was um, challenged with writing about that when I first started uh, with my 12-step guide, um, I really struggled with coming up with that. And I'm going to read you what I wrote um, with coming up with this. I need my higher power. There's not really a face involved here to be so loving and accepting and patient with me at all times, to never abandon me no matter what. <laughs> Huge, warm, soft, gentle arms and hands embracing me and letting me feel the gentle strength and power unconditional love can surround me with. Hands tenderly stroking my face and hair and massaging my neck and shoulders softly speaking words of compassion and understanding. So it's the feeling of kindness, love, sweetness, and tenderness. I need a nurturing, cuddling, loving version of God. And that's what I do. 
Thank you. I love it. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me say that today's share ID, 11064, that's 11,064. Let's continue with questions, please. Sarah S., followed by Jody H. Hi, Sarah S. Um, first of all, thank you so much. I loved every word. Um, I have a question that got triggered by something you said that one of the writers of the book ended up becoming, um, went back to drinking. So I have this tremendous fear of going back to food. And I know fear is really not good for me in program. I, like to the point that every night I dream that I, that I ate. I wonder if you can help me with that. Okay. Well, on page 88 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the greatest sentences ever written by any, anybody in, in the world ever. And on page 88, it says, it works. It really does. And Sarah, if you do not want to go back into the food, keep working the steps for the rest of your life. Hank stopped working the steps. He went back on a diet, and his diet didn't work, and he died drunk. If you, Sarah, or anybody will continue working these steps every single day of your life as if your hair was on fire, you will never have to compulsively overeat again. That is a promise. It says it works. It really does. You work the steps, you'll never, ever, ever have to worry about eating again. It'll be the furthest thing from your mind. In all honesty, I I mean, I want my breakfast or I want my lunch or I want my, but I don't even, every once in a while I do have food dreams. I don't know if any of you get them. But Sarah, you'll never have to eat compulsively again as long as you keep working the steps. And I know that that's the answer, so I hope that helps. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Sarah. Thanks for your question. Jody H., your turn. Oh, thank you so much for your service, all of you, and uh, for a vision for you. Harlan, your powerful, powerful share just had me blindsided. Thank you so much. Thank you, um, My question for you is, um, might not be on point of step two, so I apologize, but I'm new to a vision for you, and I've really been searching for the answer to this and can't find it. Um, I have two questions. One is, why must people be abstinent in order to work the steps in a vision for you? And do you want me to tell you number two now or wait for your answer? What was the second thing you said after, do you want me to wait for what? For your answer to the first question. Okay. The the question is, it's not because of vision for you. Vision for you has nothing to do with that. That is Dr. Silkworth in the doctor's opinion telling us three times that the food must be down. When I'm eating M&Ms, I am not going to have a spiritual awakening as a result of anything because I'm not clear in my thinking. I'm not clear in my heart and in my head. I cannot get in touch with feelings because every time those feelings come up, I'm not going to feel them. I'm going to anesthetize myself with Oreo cookies. And vision for you has absolutely nothing to do with this. Vision for you is just a healthy OA meeting that is following the, uh, the, the uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if I'm not abstinent, I'm not going to have a spiritual awakening. If you go to an AA meeting and you're drunk, 
They're going to tell you to plug the jug. They're not going to sit and say, hey, let's work the steps. Countless times in the big book, it, t it shows us that they let these guys sober up for two days. You don't, have to be, you don't have to be abstinent for a month or a year. You have to be sober. You have to be abstinent for a couple of days. And once you're clear of the food for a couple of days, you can hit the ground running. But the reason specifically that you must be abstinent is you are clouded, and you don't even know you're clouded in the food. That's the baffling nature of this disease. That's one of the baffling, it's not the, but it's one of the baffling natures of this disease is that I don't even know that I'm not clear when I'm in the food because it all looks the same to me. I think I'm okay. Guess what? I'm not. I'm not. And that's the answer to that question. Is there a, a follow-up to that, Jody? Well, I don't know if it's odd or if it's God, but your answer to the first question answered my second question. God bless you, Harlan. You're welcome. Thank you, Jody. God bless you as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jody. Carolee D, and that'll be followed by Ida L, I believe. Carolee D. Thank you so much. Uh, Carolee D from Alabama, and Harlan, as always, you your um was very 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 uplifting, and I guess uh, mine. I just want to say to you that I did meet you a year ago. I don't even know if you met me or remember me at the L.A. convention, you're going January, mm -hmm. and you are such a, I don't know, I would say um, people look up to you. Everyone loves you, Harlan, <laughs> and you help so many of us. You do. I don't think you really realize, and really this is just an exhortation probably, to let you know a big thank you from all of us, just to let you know you're doing so much in helping us, and I am so, so grateful to God first of all, that he is using you and that you are steadfast. He's making you steadfast. And you say the truth about the big book. You know, hang in there. Don't give up. Be abstinent and do the 12 steps the rest of your life. I loved everything you said. And it's just the big book. And I just wanted to say there's other ones, many others that are, are um, help all of us. John Kay, Greg, um, um, Larry, all the women, Lisa, I can't name them all. All of you help help so much, and I just thank you for your service. That's all. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carol Lee, and I do remember you, and thank you very much. Thanks. Let's move on now. Ida A. followed by Shauna H. Ida, star one to unmute, please. Oh, hi, good, uh, good morning. This is Ida from Northern, uh, Compulsive Overeater from Northern British Columbia. Thank you so much for being there. Harlan, that was amazing. Um, my question is, um, uh, how to word it? Um, it I, I, I struggle, I, I struggle with having a 93-year-old mother with mental health issues, and I know I need to be in the program. I know it's not about her, but I feel like I keep getting derailed. So my real question is, if your mother was still alive, how would you do that differently? How, how would you do program differently? Because I would prioritize I program as the number one thing in my life without exception. 
and I know in my heart that anything I put before God, I will lose. And I am not going to be of service to a mother. I'm not going to be of service to, a, to anyone or anything unless I am working the program. There is nothing that comes before my program. And some of the worst ideas I've ever had in my life came wearing the sexiest clothes. And it is so easy for me to get distracted, get distracted by earthly things, get distracted by, well, I can't, I can't. I don't tell myself can't. I show myself what I can do. And a 93-year-old mom needs an abstinent daughter. A 20-year-old mom needs an abstinent, whatever it is. Nothing comes before program. Nothing. That's the answer. I don't have any other answer. I, I wish I had some magical potion that I could, you know, spray you with. I don't. Nothing comes before abstinence. On every airplane that I've ever been on, there was a great Al-Anon meeting. They have Al-Anon meetings at every flight I've ever taken. And what they say is, Put your mask on first. Put your mask on first and then help your child. Because if you're passed out, you can't help anyone. And that's the answer, Ida. But thank you for the question. Thank you. You're welcome, Ida. Shauna H. Hi, Harlan. Hi, Shauna. I'm sitting in the hospital at a meeting with your face on the You're breaking up. I don't know if it's me, but you're breaking up. Is that better? Yeah, much better, yeah. So I'm sitting here at the Clinton Hospital in Clinton, Massachusetts, where we have our Sunday morning meeting at 8.30, and mm-hmm. we got about six inches of snow last night and Mm. and nobody could get out of their driveways to get here today. So Mm -hmm. I'm just here and the room is filled with your voice and the voices of everyone in vision and it's glorious. Mm. And I just wanted to tell you that and to thank you and to ask you one question related to happy, joyous, and free. Whenever Mm -hmm. you say that, my heart just explodes Mm -hmm. and I just feel like this is it. This is what I want to do. And then when I get some calls from very specific um, people who are in program um, related to the page that we talked about, was that page 55, about Mm -hmm. the the 50% get sober? That's page XX in the forward to the second edition. So I think what happens with me a lot is that I get the phone calls from that 1% of the two out of three who aren't coming back and aren't going to do the program and aren't willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And how do you keep that from zapping your happy, joyous, and free? I do not attach my happiness to what somebody else does or doesn't do. If they don't want to work the program, it's just not their time. There are a lot of people coming through that are not going to do this. I've seen, this is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. I have sponsored a lot of people through the years. And one of the things I can tell you is, is that some of the people that came to me for sponsorship, whether they came to me in person, whether they called me from a distant place, they 
some of them have no intention whatsoever of doing any of this. They have not suffered enough pain yet. It takes a tremendous amount of torture, pain, loneliness, deprivation before you will succumb to the steps. The ego dies a very, very slow death. But I am not going to diminish my level of happiness, my level of joyousness, or my level of freedom because somebody else doesn't want to work the program. There aren't stars in the sky to represent every person that ever came in and decided, I'm not doing this. Now, there are also people who come in here that are non-compulsive overeaters as well. But I believe also that of the people that are compulsive overeaters, there is a time period where they have to experiment and they have to go eat and then come back or not. Some of them will make it back and some of them won't. But I am not that alanonic where I'm going, to condition, I'm going to diminish my life because somebody else doesn't want to work the program. They don't want to work the program? God bless them. God bless them. They'll either be back or they won't. I hope that answers it, but that's the answer, Shona. Uh, thank you. Of course it answers it. You are always you. right dead straight <laughs> on, and I didn't make it to L.A. to give you a hug, but I'm still oh, going to find you and give you a hug. I, I will be in L.A., God willing, next year for the birthday, and that will be Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday weekend at the Los Angeles Hilton. And uh, there's, I don't believe there's any registration now. It's only February. But keep watching in your emails and stuff. Come to the OA birthday, and I'll be very glad to give you a hug, Shona. Thank you so much. Thanks, I'll be Tyler. there. Thank you. And Rita G, your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, I'm Rita G, and I have been programmed a very long time. Um, different programs. I came to OA when I first was 12, and then I'm 68, and started uh, probably in my like when I was around 36. I mean, I I came in my teens, and I don't know. I get it, and then I I don't get it, you know. And he was you you. You did answer, like, a lot of my questions as you were talking to the other people. Um, but I just don't understand why, you know. I've been there, suffered the hardest. I've been in rehabs. I've been, you know, at the bottom. I've been where I didn't get out of bed for for years. I've been at the worst, you know, and I still, I still, like, you know, go off now and then. I still take my will back. I don't really understand what taking your will back is, but and and I'm in other programs too. Mm-hmm. But um I don't know why. Like last night I had something I shouldn't have, you know, a few times this week and last week, you know, I haven't been mm-hmm. through anything or really, you know, gone wild. I'm still losing weight, but I shouldn't be having these things, especially what happened was I got really serious when I found out that my sugar was going up and then I got really scared and I got really serious and I lost, you know, close to 20 pounds, and, um, you know, the last, I'm under a lot, a lot of stress, you know, I'm moving in between a couple of places and mm-hmm. and stuff, and I guess the stress just, you know, gets me, or sometimes maybe the loneliness, or the, um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have any children, I have my fiance, and my husband, mm-hmm. you know, passed away, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, crap happens, my, I might, and, <laughs> 
you were talking about the craziness um, that we don't know. What, you know, kind of, kind of like whatever you were saying, meaning that we're crazy. I mean, and mm-hmm. I, I know that. I know that we're clouded when when we're eating the food. You know, and I know, mm-hmm. like, you know, sometimes it's like, all right, I should go to a meeting, but like, what is the point? I just mm-hmm. had, you know, just say blah 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 with all the sugar mm-hmm. in it. You know, if I go to a meeting, is it really gonna? do anything you know sometimes i'll go in that condition sometimes i won't because i'm not going to hear what they're saying Mm -hmm. so i just don't know i heard you you know talking about not getting it and not getting it and you know when i say to myself like last night i'm like i keep telling my fiance you don't understand like our food is different my food has to come first i can't worry about if you are not hungry or you're hungry if i'm out and i have to stop at a restaurant to eat something good a salad or you know something a piece of meat whatever I have to mm-hmm. stop. I can't worry that you're not hungry, you know, and if that's the mm-hmm. way it is, I'm going out without you. I'm not going to have you, like, eating um, before we leave the house and then me, you know, being an outside eater. How can I help you? Thank you. I'm just like, I think you did by saying you really, 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 really have to work the steps. You have to if work the steps else and there's no other substitute. And you, you, you have to really know that you're done or, or, or you're not done. But there's really nothing we can do for you until you put the food down. You have to have it down for a couple of days. You have to have a powerful sponsor that knows the big book. You have to go in and work the steps, and you won't eat compulsively anymore. If you don't do these things, you will eat compulsively. It's black and white. Well, thank I hope you. that answers really your question. sounds very, very strong. I'm sorry? You sound very, very strong. Thank you so much. Because really I know in my heart that what I'm telling you is 100% correct. Thank you. I know in my mind that it's 100% correct. Thank you, Rita. Thank you to everyone who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Harlan, for your time and effort this morning carrying the message of recovery to all of us. Let's close from page. Thank you so much. Page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.